Hey everybody, welcome to Reframe. Thanks for uh, tuning in. So what we're doing here is a reflection on 2019. And so we wanted to take some of our favorite moments of the entire year and compile them together into one episode as a bit of a review. It was great to look back at all the different topics we discussed and all the different guests we had on the show. And while we're uh, producing some new shows for 2020, we thought this would be a great moment to kind of reflect and uh, give you guys a bit of a trailer of uh, all the content we've made at least in the last 12 months, if you missed it, um, as a chance for you to get a little taste and dig into that if you feel like it. So let's just get going. Near the beginning of last year, we produced an episode about reinvention. We talked a lot about the abstract concept of the new year and new beginnings. Here's a clip. We are, you know, we live in a society and a world of our own social and psychological constructs. And the calendar and the way we manage time is certainly one of those things. And I do think some of that is related to, you know, the, the earth spinning around uh, once or going around the sun once or seasons. But in general... We're busy. We're busy people, um, often too busy, as we've uh, touched on on this show a bunch of times. And the end of the year feels like a a spot where you get this big break to kind of not be so busy. And we've all agreed together that uh, we're all not going to be busy because we're going to spend time with our families and our friends and we're going to have downtime. And then it's followed immediately by this new year idea and this idea that you started over. Um, And in one sense, you, you, you literally did because the earth has kind of made a full rotation around the sun. But really, it's, I think it's just a device uh, to allow reinvention and or to allow like, hey, I'm going to do it a little bit differently this time around. And I think as some people will argue that it's it really is, you know, just kind of a fake crutch or a construct. It's still very helpful. And, and, and I want to add too. I think an oddly nostalgic. You know, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is that this idea that like we we need a calendar we need a date to start making changes or, or to start trying on new behaviors or trying on new experiments in our lives or, or whatever it is in america in particular and in, in in the west in general we don't have a lot of like rites of passage you know there's we don't have these kind of explicit signifiers that say hey you're moving from one place in your life to the next And so, you know, we have a couple of like things like birthdays or graduation from school or weddings or, you know, I guess technically funerals are a good one. Other than those, those are kind of the big landmarks where there are ceremonies attached to it that tell us, hey, we're moving from one phase of life to the next. But on a on a more regular note, birthdays and New Year's, New Year's. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I, I found this interesting, and I've come across this a few times. It, you know, again in the West and in America, we don't have a lot of rituals and rites, and so I, I looked this up. You know, I went to Wikipedia, right, and I, I look up the the stages um, of rites of passage. So, rites of passage, uh, kind of formalized, have three distinct phases. One is separation; that's the first phase. Then liminality, and then incorporation. 
So uh, in this first phase, uh, the idea of separation is people withdraw from their current status and prepare to move from one place to another. So that's separation. I'm moving away from my old ideas or my old behaviors or my old whatever, and I'm, but I've got to cut that stuff loose first. So I actually have to separate. It's more like detachment. The second one is this, the transition or the liminal stage. It's kind of the phases like in between periods. It's like I've left one, but I haven't yet gotten into the next one, right? You're so, still lost in the woods on your vision quest. That's correct. That's exactly that's right. right. That's right. And then the third phase is uh, like reaggregation or incorporation. Um, and it's like where one kind of re-enters society, if you will, with like this new status. And so a couple of ones that I think are interesting, like examples of that are like debutante balls, college graduations, like things like that that you know i'm i am now i've showed up i've got a degree i've got a diploma i'm out in society whatever it is but if we think about new years if we get back to our original thing and why people do this there is this like separation stage this liminal stage kind of around the holidays where i'm leaving one but i'm not yet into the new one and then incorporation which is where i'm really trying on some new things in this new year a lot of what our job is is to help our clients help other people kind of question all of those conventions so that you can think about those things differently. Um, and so this is one of the ways that I, I question those social conventions that most people just accept, um, not to break them necessarily, but to look at them differently. Richard Rohr wrote, uh, this came out August of last year, one of his blog posts, but it was called Primal and Indigenous Spirituality. And I love this line. He says, but at certain points along the way, humans are prone to getting stuck unless we have some kind of initiatory experience, healing rites of passage, and the aid of some guides or elders. Most of modern America and European cultures have unfortunately lost the universal tradition of initiation. And there are now few true elders to lead us onward Instead of rites that encourage us to let go and begin anew, we are urged, both by the church and by Western society, to perform better, to do the right thing, and even be more successful. We gun our already existing engines. Oh. In 2019, we also re-aired our most popular episode of the show ever. It's called Imposter Syndrome. We talked to quite a few successful people about their most vivid memories of having their own imposter syndrome feelings. Here is Van Tucker on her story of attending one of the top 10 business schools in America without ever having an undergrad degree in the first place. I was never able to get an undergraduate degree. And so I started my career as a teller in banking and worked really, really hard for 10 years and found myself a senior vice president of a national division. And I asked my boss, uh, at the time, I said, you know, what's next for me? And he said, well, I've, I've noticed in looking at your personnel file that you haven't been to college. And he said, before I can really advocate for you on a national level for the largest bank in the country, um, they're going to want to see some education. At the time, my children were 10 and 11 years old, both boys, um, very active in school. He said, I think I need to send you to Vanderbilt to get your MBA. And I said, well, Bob, I don't, I don't, 
I don't have an undergraduate degree. How do you do that? And he said, well, he said, I'm not sure, but I'm going to call over there and find out. And I was scared. I it just, I was terrified. But he called and they said, uh, okay, she has to take the GMAT, score very well. She has to interview well. And uh, we'll see about putting her in the executive MBA program. Which, at the time, Vanderbilt was a top 10 business school in the country. And so I studied for the GMAT. I hired a tutor. Uh, bottom line is I got accepted. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified when I got that letter that said, yes, we've accepted you. Report for math camp on this date. So I literally, in a cold sweat, went to math camp because my fear was, I mean, you know, it was top 10 business school. These were executives from these amazing companies. Like one of my classmates was the president of Bridgestone. Advanced hydrodynamics enable Bridgestone tires to collect surface. Uh, one was a neurologist at Vanderbilt. What is so special about the human brain? Why is it that we I mean, these were high performing people. They were going to find out that I did not have an undergraduate degree, that I was completely stupid. They were going to think that I didn't deserve to be there and that I was degrading their experience and their degree. So make a long story short, that's not how it played out. Uh, I graduated at the top, you know, in the top 5% of my class. Um, I was just as smart as anyone else in the class in a very different way. We all had different experiences. We all had different intelligence. And what was so rich about the experience uh, was exactly that. Everyone had a different perspective. And we were able to share those perspectives. But man, did I feel like <laughs> that was probably my first experience with imposter feelings of I don't deserve to be here or I'm not as good as they say I am and I'm scared to death somebody's going to find out. Another favorite from that episode was Stokes' own co-founder, Anna Love, on one of the most memorable and cringeworthy dinner parties she ever attended. I was working in corporate America and really in a pretty miserable job. And one day I opened up my email, my Gmail, and I got an invitation to have dinner at Lois Quam's house. Now, for me as a woman and a business owner, I wasn't a business owner at that point, actually a woman in corporate America in Minnesota, Lois Quam was kind of someone to aspire to. I predict that the medical community will lead in bringing green industries to life to decrease carbon emissions and reduce the worst consequences of global warming. And I believe that the principal purpose of partnerships right now is to increase the urgency by which we act. So she was friends with Obama and, I don't know, probably Oprah, and she was a badass leader. I think the medical community will be an engine of innovation in bringing the new clean 
energy, economy to scale. When I first saw the dinner invitation come through my email, I was like a giddy schoolgirl. I was so excited. I felt like I was about to have dinner at a rock star's house. So I called my husband and I'm like, Jason, you'd never believe who I get to go have dinner with. He's like, oh, like Lois Quam. And there was like this silence. Who's Lois Quam? Like she's a change maker in this world. She is a badass, powerful woman who has the ear of the Obamas. She is strong. She lives in the Twin Cities and she's invited me to dinner. He's like, why? Why? <laughs> and like for a, for a brief moment, I was a bit offended. And then I asked myself, wait, why did she invite me? Like, what do I have to contribute to this brain trust of people? So she, every single month, she and her husband would invite a handful of people to have dinner together. And really their goal was just to create space for really good conversation. And so they would invite um, business professionals, people, owners of companies. They would invite politicians, anyone who is really making a real impact in the world. And this month I got to go. So I had just had a baby and was in kind of a rough spot. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know what my impact on the world was going to be. And so I was struggling with, like, who am I? And what do I have to contribute to the world, let alone the conversation at this dinner party? As the party grew near, I started to plan out my, my, the brilliant things I was going to say. I was going to plan out what I was going to talk about and what I was doing with my life. But nothing real smart was coming to me. <laughs> it was, And so I got to this party and I was feeling awkward and I was feeling like a fish out of water. And before I knew it, people started to form a loose circle and go around the circle and introduce themselves to one another. And luckily, I was kind of at the end of the circle, and so I was listening to each person introduce themselves. And with each introduction, my anxiety rose because I had no idea what I was going to say. There was one person who was talking about how they were preserving you know, thousands of acres of land in the rainforest. The next person was talking about the political campaign that she had just run. And in my mind, I was thinking like, okay, what am I an expert in? I just had a baby. I'm like, I could talk about natural birthing and fenugreek and nipple shields and like all of these topics that are probably not very interesting to most people, especially the men sitting around this table here. Before I knew it, it was my turn, and I was standing in this circle, and all of the eyes turned to me, and I heard my voice, and it was like an out-of-body experience, and I'm like, yeah, I'm Anna Love, and I like nature. That's all I said. I said, I, I like nature. It was the longest and most awkward silence I've ever had in my entire life as everybody in that circle stood there with their heads cocked, looking at me, wondering, what the fuck? Who invited her?
That moment was painful, and the rest of that dinner was mildly better. I ended up to pull through that awkward moment to have good conversation. And more importantly, I pulled through that awkward period of my life where I I really didn't know what I was about and I really didn't know what I was doing. And it's easy for me to look back on now with relief and laugh about it, sort of. <laughs> and I'm grateful that really all I did to get me from there to here was just take one step at a time toward understanding myself and finding my place and my impact in this world. We produced a show around the idea of strengths and weaknesses, mostly inspired by personality tests we had taken and the degree of which we placed importance on those. This is a hot debate over here at Stoked. Um, So Parker and I brought on Stoked's leadership development expert, Barbara Patchen, to bring some science to the conversation. We're naturally very capable of certain things, and then there are other things that we're not naturally very good at that are that are really hard for us. And so I think the, the first time that I became aware of that notion that I remember uh, was when a few of us in the early days took a, a Strength Finders mm-hmm. test. And so have you guys heard of Strength Finders? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. So, all right, so there was a couple of us that took it, and I'll spare you all the, like, the, the gory details at the moment, but... The thing that I really appreciated was the woman that facilitated this session for us when she described our, our strengths, uh, she kind of said, hey, you have kind of a top 10 and a bottom 10. And, and you can think of it like this, your, your top five, excuse me, there were 10 total. There was a top five and a bottom five. Mm-hmm. Your top five are kind of like you swimming downstream. It's easy. You're, you're, you know, you're in your kind of natural mojo. The bottom five is a little bit more like swimming upstream. And for whatever reason, that visual made it really clear uh, because to be honest with you, like when I was trying those bottom five things, and so for me, those things are details and paperwork and memorization, it made me feel really stupid. Like I felt dumb that I couldn't do them as well as you could because I thought we all had this like equal capacity to, to do all of these things. And that was the first time I realized that that was not the case. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting about that is that um, so I've studied the the Gallup Strengths Finder quite a bit, and those bottom five are likely to never change. You're always going to be really bad at what you're bad at, but the top five do change because what's interesting is the way that they define strength is so something that's natural, like a, a, a talent, an innate talent, times investment, right? So for example, you may have this innate talent to teach, but if you haven't spent any time at it, you might not be great just yet, right? But it could rise to the top given your time investment. So they often say there's like your top 10 and those can switch around based on the way you're spending your time. That's Mm. fascinating. Yeah. Since we have you on the show, like Parker and I, like we have opinions, Yeah. but like, let's, hear <laughs> let's, let's give us, rock us out with some hard, hardcore facts, facts here. All right. Yeah. Like, okay. I, like, I know you're not going to like, and Parker, you jump in here. Cause I know Barb's not going to sell herself, but like you have an extensive background in assessing people in leadership development and dealing with different personalities and how they work together. And you got a lot of like uh, foundational science there in your hand. I do. Okay. So I've done this uh, many, many times for at least 10 years. Um, so I spent a lot of time like actually studying different assessments. But I think it's important to talk about strengths because that's kind of what we're talking about. Like, what are you naturally good at? Yeah. So the the core place to go for this is Gallup. Okay. So they've been they've been researching strength for over 75 years. They've talked to like 
almost a billion people at this rate. Um, in oh. the original days, it was like so about like 25 million. Billion with a B. Yes. Oh, okay. um, so they really understand personality dynamics. But what's special about their research is this focus on strengths. Hmm. So if you were to, to think about, you know, the world of organizational development, you know, 75 years ago, the idea was we'll talk to our employees about their gaps. And it's my job, you know, potentially as your manager to help you overcome your gaps to be the best at your job, right? Right, right? And Gallup was the first to say, I don't think that's true. What if instead we tackle, uh, we take away the things you're bad at and have you only focus on the things you're good at? So that was the hypothesis. And so one of the very first studies that they did was actually with a group of fifth graders. And I think this is quite incredible. So they took a group of fifth graders and they looked at their reading level. And so they parsed them into two groups. They had average readers and above average. So those that were average readers could do 90 words per minute. Those that were above average could do 150 words per minute. Okay, so you've got two groups. Then they said, let's do this like intervention. Let's do this time investment piece. And we're going to give them a speed reading course, whatever. And so after the course, they saw a significant difference. So it was, it was a good course, right? And so the average readers went from 90 words per minute to 350. Whoa. Whoa. That's incredible. So you can improve. Absolutely. Right. And, and the fifth graders. Ten, These are fifth like, graders. Like nine year, I know. Every time I look at this, I'm like, this is bananas. I think I read like three words a minute. Now hear this. Those that were above average, they started at 150, already exceptional. They went to almost 3,000 words per minute. Good. So look God. at that multiplier, right? right? So you're almost like twice as good after the invention. <laughs> How many words are on an average page in a book? I, I, again, we, I just keep <laughs> like trying to, trying to think of that visually. I I, it takes me like 15 minutes to read a page. Wow. Um, but yeah, so the idea here is if you're already naturally good at something and you put a bunch of time into it, you're going to be way better right. than somebody yeah. who's average or just not good at Exponential it. Exponential payoff. Yes. That's powerful. Yeah. Isn't that cool? See, so yeah. yeah, that like... Uh, that makes total sense to me because I've done the opposite in my life before where I've put a lot of time and investment in something that I'm not naturally good at because I wanted to be. Right. Yes. And then you have to have your come to Jesus at some point and be like, God, I'm just not good at this. Right. That's right. Which, which is a good – which is in its own way is a self-awareness sort of like graduation moment for you. Yeah. But it's very hard. It's hard fought and hard to come by <laughs> when you've gone, it's especially years. I mean, it, it yeah. could be yeah. – it could be um, – a creative outlet, or it could be something business related. But like, there, I think there are things people think that they think they're good at. Of course, yeah. like especially you think about. Um, we were just talking about entrepreneurship. Like, okay, I want to build a business, and I'm it's my idea, and I'm going to get funding, and I'm going to build a team. And you, I think, if you can, the majority of people are not going to be amazing at that. So you uh, you come at, you hit, you hit a, a wall at some point of like I've been trying so hard and learning and reading and talking to all these other people and have my little community. But I think at some point, a lot of people, I'm just really talking about my own personal experience. Yeah. You come to a point where you're like, maybe that's not A, the thing I'm best at, but B, maybe I don't even like it. One of my personal favorite reframe moments of 2019 was when Parker and I discussed our own similar punk rock backgrounds and how learning that DIY attitude and seeing the world through a different lens at a young age ended up totally shaping our mindsets and attitudes as adults. The music and the scene were something really specific. Yeah. And... I think those those things are often intertwined, right? Yep. Whether it's a skate scene or, or like a delinquent scene or a straight edge scene, 
And it, when you when you compile that in with the most formative years of your life, I think it has an effect on you that you can't get rid of. Totally. And for me, it was a lot of things, but to, to really distill it down, it was here I am, a teenager. I'm in like advanced placement classes in school. I'm being told if you don't have a good degree from a good university, life's over. I'm on that track like everyone else. And here I'm watching some adults, some who are maybe just 18, 19, some are in their 20s and their 30s. And they're, they're thriving in this community. They're living in warehouses. They're, they're, um, some of them are dumpster diving food. And some of them, like, they're just, they're living in an alternate way and they're happy. And it just, it just like unveiled something for me that I couldn't unsee. Totally. Yeah. It's a, there were, I, I would, I think there's a lot of seminal shows that I've seen, right? That really like changed the way that, uh, I was living and the things that I listened to and the people that I hung around and, it was almost like the the music was the precursor or the indicator of what I should be doing and who I should be hanging around. It's like, oh, if I fell in love with, you know, the headcoats or if I fell in love with, you know, social distortion in 1990 or whatever it was, it's like that led me to live the life that I would then start living. It's it was almost like a social determinant in a lot of ways. You know? Yeah, no, completely. And I also think that. You know, I look, I look at my core group of friends from then that I'm still in touch with, which I'm very fortunate because there's quite a few of us. And we've all had what I would consider like not a normal path in our like, let's just talk about work and our work lives. Entrepreneurs, promoters in marketing and PR and hustling, like just doing things differently. And I can't help but think that those years were the foundation for all of us. Absolutely. Like doing things differently, seeing it differently, realizing that kind of anything is possible and like- right. At the time, of course, you feel like everything my parents say is garbage. And like, <laughs> right. This is the and like yeah. reflecting on it now, like that's it's not so cut and dry. My parents had a lot of great points. Yeah, totally. But you can see another the other side of the coin. Yeah. And so now as an adult, it's so ingrained in me that um, I it's probably one of the biggest assets I carry with me. Totally. Well, and we think about like e- even like little things like DIY culture, right? Like as far as I know, that really spun out of a lot of people making great art. Uh, whether it be films or music uh, with no budgets. And uh, I think a lot of the work that we do kind of stems from that same ethos, that idea of like, man, we can try this ourselves and see what happens. And I think we all wanted to step away from massive overproduced, you know, huge concerts. And that just wasn't interesting anymore when you could stand right in front of your band when they're six inches off the ground and like their sweat's flying on you, right? Like that is actually like, oh my God, I am present and engaged. I mean, if you think about what we do here, at Stoked, even with our newsletter, it's basically a zine. That's right. We're putting out the 2019 equivalent of a zine that's being made by a company. That's right. But we're putting out ideas we like. We're making content. We're sharing other people's content. And in the late 90s, you just went to Kinko's and you staple bound like some that's shitty right. thing. And, yeah. and you would pass it out to your friends. And that was how you spread your ideas. Yeah. And so the, the principles and mechanics are pretty much the same. They're pretty similar. One of our most popular episodes of 2019 was called Why We Do What We Do. We interviewed a handful of people about how they got into their line of work, why they stay there, and what keeps them ticking day in and day out. Here's a sample. It's John Terry's story, just one of several in that episode. Uh, my name is John Terry. I'm a venture guide for a luxury resort in East Tennessee. I have always been in the recreation field for, I mean, roughly 15 to 20 years and got into it uh, at 19 when I didn't know much about what I wanted to do with my life and started working for a rafting company and uh, immediately was drawn to the industry and uh, the people that surround the industry. 
always enjoyed the outdoors and um you know learning new things and being able to to pick up and become proficient and teach other people how to you know do things like rock climbing and you know learning flora fauna you know as much as you learn with anything in nature and in the outdoor industry you know the more you know the more you realize you have to learn so that aspect's always appealed to me and just uh, also just connecting to people and, and creating experiences for people that they can take back to their everyday lives that are a lot different than what they're used to on their normal routines. You know, being in the adventure and outdoor industry, you know, you're outside a lot. It's a different lifestyle. It's definitely a lifestyle choice. Could make a lot more money uh, doing other things. But, you know, me, I've always had a difficult time being in, you know, classrooms or, you know, just highly structured environments. environments. So being able to get out and, you know, be in open spaces and, you know, doing things that are enjoyable and for most of it is, you know, high adventure and, and exciting. So, you know, that, you know, suited me well with my learning styles and my personality types. On Collaboration, an episode about people working with others in one way or another, we talked to a few different folks about how collaboration played an important role in their work. We even brought on Baxter Williams as a guest host and producer for the episode in an effort to bring a new collaboration to the show. Here is Andrea Behrens, a Nashville-based photographer, on the nature of collaboration between her and her subjects. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do here in Nashville. I'm Andrea Behrens, and I am a photographer. So today we're talking about collaboration. Um, in what ways do you find yourself collaborating with other people in your photography business? Well, depending on the genre, um, let's say I'm taking someone's portrait. Um, that's a very quick need to collaborate. I'm going to need the subject to um, sort of show up. So my part of the job is, you know, aside from the technical of lighting it or focusing the camera, is to kind of create an environment that's comfortable enough for that person to show up and not just, you know, fake smile or in some cases block me out altogether. Um, because it's kind of, you know, having your portrait made is a little bit vulnerable. Um, so I try to, <laughs> I usually let them know that I hate being photographed um, and try to bond with them on that. Um, and that can help sometimes. I've even, I've even given the camera to someone to let them try to take my pictures so that they can see how awkward I become um, and that it's okay that anything that's bad, we're just gonna delete it anyway so that you're safe. I'm not gonna, you know, expose you. Um, plus you're an asshole, and then I might. Uh, if it's food, the collaboration is with the chef. Um, if it's product, the collaboration is with the creator or the agency, depending. Um, so if I'm coming into a shoot that already has a concept, um, I can't impose mine as much. Um, then it's more about which lighting best uh, brings forth that concept or um, 
lines up with a concept. So it, de it does, it, it definitely depends, but I, lo I love collaborating, I really do. At one point I kind of hoped that I would end up in a photography duo, which is sort of a thing that's out there, but I haven't met that person yet. Um, but, you know, literally, like, if I had a motto, it would be collaborate instead of compete. I, I would much, yeah, absolutely. There's room for everyone. And the more brains on something, the better an idea can be yeah. if there's a collaborative spirit yeah. instead of a competitive one. So I'm, I want to just kind of, like, focus on the portraiture piece for a minute. Um, you talked about one way in which you get people to, like, show up. Um, so that's kind of one side of that collaboration. What is necessary for them to, like, um, to be a part of that collaboration to make a great portrait? Uh, you know, I guess it depends on that person's understanding of the tradition of a portrait and what it is or the purpose of the portrait. Um, I think that there's lots of reasons to have your portrait made. Um, an actor needs a headshot. That's technically a portrait. Um, but the tradition of portrait making is passing of time, I would say. So I think that I have one woman that comes to me around her birthday every year. We've only done two, but I kind of know that we're going to continue doing that. And so what I need from her is to have an idea of what we're time stamping and be willing to give that to me or show that to me. And that can be a very subtle change in the eyes. Um, but what they need to bring is that willingness to put whatever that might be into their eyes for me, let me capture it, look, look at the camera with me and um, just be present. It's about presence, I'd say. I traveled to New York to talk to my old friend James Ellis and bring him on the show to tell his origin story as a New York-based creative professional and entrepreneur. His story is one of the wildest ones you're likely to hear and worth listening to every minute of him tell it. He's a master storyteller and it's both funny and insightful. Here's a sample from that show which was titled The Power of Nothing to Lose. I guess the wrinkle in my story is that all through high school, I was less and less interested in uh, the whole uh, high school enterprise. And I was trying to imagine ways that I could enjoy some kind of college life or whatever. But the more I'd research colleges, you know, in, or universities, anything related to the stuff I was interested in, meaning like digital design, they didn't have programs at that time. I felt pretty confident that I knew more than they did. I mean, which is true. The, the schools hadn't had time to catch up. It wasn't like they failed. It just, this is late it was 90s. just a weird time in, I guess in like American history. It's like a weird yeah. moment where like the computer and the internet was just starting to eat everything. So not seeing schools that really like spoke to me and then being super, uh, dissatisfied at high school every day. Like at high school, I was just thinking about design and music. And it's like, I'll watch you do whatever on the board and I'll fill out the test. But like, I'm not doing any more than this. So it's just in that moment in life. And I had a little bit of this, this confidence, I think, that had come from doing real professional design work. And a sense that like, well, I can just do it. I've been in the room with the adults. I am as capable or as smart as any of these people. The mystery had started falling away from me. 
Uh, but what was freaking me out was that I didn't want to go to school anymore. I just don't want to do it anymore, man. I don't want to go. <laughs> you I, some, I'm you busy. also had some health things that kept you out for like blocks of time. I had which some made kidney it stones. Even harder. Yeah, you I had kidney, kidney stones. stones. I mean, I think kidney stones at that age because they started when I was a teenager. You just inherited it on both sides of family and something like that, where you're in a lot of pain. Uh, for an extended period of time, and then it happens again, and it happens again. You gotta have surgery or something, you know. In those kinds of moments, you're like, you know, you're just very much like, fuck it. Yeah. I'm in pain. I don't want to do that. Like, it'll change your mind. Like, you know how nobody changes anything in their life unless they're a little unhappy. No one makes some dramatic change if things are just cruising along. Right. Like, it's gotta be kind of bad. And I think that was true in my case. I was not happy and I didn't feel very good. And stuff like that starts to, sh you, you shed inhibitions, you shed, you know, some sense of like, well, I'm supposed to be doing this or I'm supposed to be on a certain track. But rather you're like, I'm way off track already. I'm not supposed to be having kidney stones. I'm not supposed to whatever, but like, I don't think I'm going to school anymore. So the very start of, at the very start of senior year, I'm, I'd already torpedoed it in my junior year, but the very start of senior year, I was like, well, I guess I, I can just somehow muddle through. And within the first like week at, back at school that year, first week, I remember having a slight panic attack because it had hit me. I was like, I will not make it to the end of the year. It ain't going to happen. And I remember being overwhelmed by how disappointed family would be. You know, my mom's an educator. And I was like, oh, this is going to be horrific. It's like seeing a car accident well in advance. We're going to wreck. We're going to go over the cliff. You know, I struggled with it, I think, for a few more weeks. And then I finally um, announced to family, like, uh, ah, I'm not going anymore. Not going to school anymore. And, um, you know, at first, everyone's just kind of baffled. <laughs> and they're like, what? No, you're going. You go to school. You're a child. You, do, <laughs> you, know? you don't tell us. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, my 18th birthday is coming up real soon. No, you had a you had a whole like legal case against this. Didn't it's you? like, I'm just letting you all know in advance. It's the end of the line for me. You know, I'm not going to go back and share Ellis. My mom, I really admire her, uh, the position she took. She was like, oh, if that's the way you want to do it. OK, well, your bedroom, $400 a month. I'm signing over the, this beat up old car that I had. That's being signed over to you. You're responsible for the insurance. If you want to be the big boy, you go ahead. But like, power move because it was, but she wasn't aware of how much swim. money I had. At some point, Parker and I do a few profiles on some of the storytellers, entrepreneurs, and changemakers out there we admire and why. We called it Authenticity as a Commodity. Here's a sample from that episode about filmmaker and YouTuber Casey Neistat. So this dude uh, was born in 1981. He's born in, like, I think he grew up in Connecticut. And he had kind of a rough childhood based then I think it was probably his own doing. So he gets into trouble in his teenage years. Uh, runs away at 15, never goes home, and then uh, lives with his girlfriend, who he gets pregnant at 17, and so he drops out of high school. Right. Uh, so all cards stacked against him. He ends up living in a trailer park on welfare with his brand new baby, working for $8 an hour at a seafood place, living with his girlfriend. Again, maybe his own fault, but right. really starting in a hole here. Yeah. Um, then 
He moves to New York City in 2001 when he is 20 years old. Has to has to remove himself from this day to day of his son's life, so he can only see him part of the time. But uh, obviously, Casey, you're 20 years old. You're still you're still a kid. That's right. And he basically works odd jobs. He gets hired by this guy named Tom Sachs for $10 an hour to help out with his studio, which is you know probably personal assistant type stuff. Right. And so. His his first big thing was he put out a video in 2003 called iPod's Dirty Secret, yeah. Dirty Little Secret, and it was about the battery life of the iPods and how their replacement policy was they weren't they weren't going to give you a new one. Right. And so he makes this video of him spray painting all over the city like on iPod ads, um, and this is pre YouTube. Right. And this video goes nuts. Like the media picks it up. He ends up on shows, um, and so it's a huge spike in like him as a content creator. Yeah. From what I can tell from looking into it, that led to jobs. Led to him making things. Ends up with a guy who's willing to back him and his brother making a show for HBO. Yeah. So, yeah, he's got a handful of brothers that he's kind of done different things with. Or at least one. Yeah. yeah. And so they make this show on their, uh, with um, them and this guy, like he funds it. They make the show. They then sell it to HBO for $2 million in 2008. Yeah. Uh, HBO airs it. It premieres June 4th, 2010. And I don't think it ever did really well. But one thing I've heard him say is his son at that point is now, you know, a, a, a young person, but has his own watches, you know, YouTube. Right. And he says, like, oh, none of my friends, we don't watch H- like TV. We watch YouTube. And so it seemed like at that point he, like, just decided he was going to go all in on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, February 17th, 2010, he puts up his first video. And if you go back and look at these, what I think is also really interesting is they're not daily vlogs. A lot of people get on YouTube and they're just like, here's my life. Here's my hustle. Here's my thing. And that's fine, but like he made short video essays that were very well thought out, and they right. were quirky, and they were interesting, and they had a little point, and it wasn't about him at all. Like he started making things that were interesting before he turned the camera on himself and said, "Hey, look, I'm also interesting." Right. I think that's a pretty big distinction. Yeah, there's a series of things that happen. So like he puts out a video called Bike Lanes in June of 2011 about the. <laughs> about how he got ticketed for riding his bike not in the bike lane in New York but because the bike lanes are always uh, littered right. so he Blocked. makes a video yeah. of him like running into cars and bike lanes but that also gets on the media gets on the news becomes a story and I think basically kind of launches his his channel and then and then my favorite moment was in 2012 when he's doing some work for Nike and the story goes that I think it was three videos and he had like done treatments for him and it was a total like there were famous athletes in him and everything he does the first two. By the time he gets to the third video, he just doesn't want to make it. So he calls whoever up at Nike and says, instead of me making what I said I was going to make, I want to take your entire budget and I'm just going to travel around the world and I promise you I'll deliver something that you'll like. Right. And so I guess they had enough trust in him and I think also it probably wasn't, a, you know, probably a rounding error for whoever this marketing right. person yeah. was at Nike. So him takes his buddy and they, they travel around the world in 10 days, mostly sleeping on airplanes. Um, and they make a video called Make It Count, which is still like one of the best things I've ever seen on YouTube. Definitely make this flight, but we're cutting it close. So far the trip is off to a fairly irresponsible start. We got to Paris, 17 degrees outside. Yeah, welcome to Cairo. We visited Tahir Square. We rode horses. Uh, Max almost fell off of his. Delivers it to Nike. Last time I checked, it was Nike's most watched digital content of all time. Yeah. It's got like... Uh, I don't know, 30 million views or something. It's crazy. But yeah, I think if you wanted to just get a sense of, of Casey Neistat's message to the world and also, and his style and like why we find it interesting, just watch Make It Count. Like that's the one video to me I feel yeah. like could, could explain most of that. And to and to double click on that a little bit, like Make It Count is about the, the, the now defunct Nike Fuel Band, 
right? Yeah, that and was so a, it was a product placement. It's the yeah. most watched piece of digital content they have for a product that doesn't even exist anymore. Like that's pretty impressive. It's like a, I think it's like the spirit of the brand too. Absolutely. Like, so then after that, he does he launches a daily vlog. He gets goes crazy now. You know, he's got almost 12 million subscribers. I looked, 2.6 billion views. Uh, it estimated to be worth around like $16 million, if that's relevant. And he he, he uh, also built and sold a small startup called Beam to CNN for $25 million. Yeah. And all that, I think, is important because you have not that many years ago, dude was washing dishes in Connecticut with every card stacked against him. That's right. And if you watch his story, and I think it's fairly credible, it's, he, he just, it's just hard work. In the fall, we had one of our closest friends and fellow Nashvilleian, Marcus Whitney, on the show. There is so, so, so much I could say about Marcus and why this is worth listening to. But instead of saying too much, I'll just play a clip of Marcus discussing his recent personal health transformation and why. I strongly recommend you check out that entire show. It's called Health, Longevity, and Privilege. Here's Marcus Whitney. For your listeners, I think... uh, Parker, as you're talking about my journey, I think what you mean is I've kind of rebooted my life in, in a bunch of different ways, and I'm and I'm and I'm writing about it pretty regularly in yeah. a weekly newsletter that I have. I think that's what and you very mean. Very, op- I am, and very openly. Like I, I guess I'd like it's a thing that like that we value here at Stoked is like this idea of like being pretty transparent with like what's going on as a human being versus just as a business or a business person. You know? Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of change that was queued up to happen in the last six to eight months and i'll just sort of check off some of some of the things so uh one really really big one is uh my my youngest son just went to college okay and so that is there's really no way to put that into words um you know people who have gone through it know what it know what it feels like but it's a real marker of time and i think on top of that, for me, because this is happening while I'm 43, you know, it's happening pretty, I'm pretty young. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just have this sense that I have something like two more real lives to live, right. if that makes sense, yeah, right? Totally. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. my life really sort of started when my oldest came into my life, right? And so I sort of think of the last 20 years as, like, my life. Before that, I was, like, growing up, I was a kid. I was doing all sorts of, like, silly shit. But, like, my real life started 20 years ago. Yeah. I'm 43. I've got two more of those at yeah. least. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Totally. And so it, there's just sort of this, like, hold on. Let's just press pause on basically everything for a second. And let's just take stock of what's what's happened right. uh, over over the last 20 years. Um, and so that's been that's been a big part of it. Um, I think there were, there were some real health concerns that I had, hmm. uh, you know, la- really like last year this time. So so we're recording uh, at the end of August. Yep. What typically, what has happened the last four years of my life at the end of August is I've thrown a massive event in the healthcare space uh, right. that was called Health Further. I've since taken the brand because that's what you can do as a creative and I've repurposed it for what the fuck I want it to be. <laughs> uh, but like it was, you know, people try to tell you what you can and can't do. Right. Like, fuck them. Okay? Right. But like, you know, I'm, I'm, I made a festival. I called it Health Further. And, uh, you know, it basically killed me every year I did it. Right. Um, but like killed me in a good way. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I came out of it on the other side very, very legitimate as 
an authority on healthcare innovation. Yeah. And there's just no way that would have happened if I hadn't done that. Like, it's just the reality of it. Totally. But man, last year, uh, you know, we, we probably threw our best one. It was three days. Um, there were 1,700 people there, uh, 100 people from outside of the country. Uh, I was on nonstop for three days. Yeah. And I think probably at the end of it, I probably had consumed 20 alcoholic beverages. Right. Um, and also, while that was going on in parallel, uh, we, we were in the middle of a massive uh, issue with the Nashville City Council around the uh, the stadium. Oh, right. Um, yep. And so, like, literally, I got off stage at the Country Music Hall of Fame, jumped in an Uber, went down to city council, stood behind Eddie George, made my plea, and then went back to, like, close out the event. Wow. That was day one of the event. That was the first day. That was the first day of right. the event. In two seconds, why would you care about the stadium? Tell, tell our listeners why you would care. Uh, because I'm, I'm a minority owner in the club. And the soccer club. The soccer club. In, 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 in National, National Soccer Club. club. National yeah. Soccer club. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so man, it was a lot going on okay and at the end i was like super relieved that that we had gotten through it and it was done and everything ended up working out good you know but i was i was kind of a wreck yeah you know i was kind of a wreck and then and then it didn't like stop there you know that that being a wreck kind of continued into september uh and i was genuinely concerned about like my health yeah by the time october rolled around and I was like, nah, th- like I'm gonna really have to do some stuff. And also, by the way, that summer, my my oldest son had had uh, informed us after he had a, a rough first year at, at college that he was gonna um, that he had, had enlisted in the Marines. Uh, and so there was just a ton of stuff wow. going yeah, on, man. And um, yeah, it was just a lot going on. And you know, you're talking about the transparency. I mean. What really started me making changes that were healthy was when I started admitting, you know, to other people that I cared about things that were really bothering me or that were a real problem. You know, so I remember the first time, you know, I remember being in a car with with uh, with my wife and and saying, you know, breaking out crying and being like, I have a real issue with alcohol right now. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Right. Um, And like. That was hard, but like as soon as it was over, I was like, "Oh, that felt good." Yeah. Like now I can like go deal with that. I just started like taking stock of the more that I talked about something, the more I was like kind of free from it. Totally. And the more I like it was just like not a thing. Um. And so I was like, I need to get back writing. You know, I need to make this into I need to make this into a practice. I just I just realized. Then the the other thing is, you know, our our fund is our fund is in the healthcare space. This event is in the healthcare space. I knew nothing about healthcare five years ago, and Parker, you you spent a lot of time in healthcare, right? And so what what got really depressing for me over the course of the five years was just this recognition that this industry is such a mess, mm-hmm. and it is not going to take care of me at all. Right. You know what I mean? And I really don't want it to. Right. You know what I mean? Right. I really want to be in charge of my own health. Right. And so and so that was the other thing. Just like mm. knowing from the inside very, very well uh, that, 
you don't want to be in the hands of the healthcare industry if you can if you can help it. And so then I just started getting more serious about the changes that I, you know, how many times can you talk about social determinants of health and and chronic disease before it's like how about you start fasting? How about you stop eating shit? How about you yeah. stop drinking? How about you work on sleep? Yeah. How about that? Finally, in September, Parker took a long chunk of time off and disappeared into the Swiss Alps to a small village he likes to return to every year to decompress and realign himself after a busy summer. While he was there, he wrote about his experience, and when he returned, we produced a show of him reading that as a monologue mixed in with clips he captured while in the mountains. Have a listen. At Stoked, we try to offer as much freedom as possible to all of our partners. Freedom to choose the work that they do, freedom to design the work itself, and freedom to lead that work however they see fit based on our clients' needs. We offer the freedom to take lots of time off, to work from wherever you want and the freedom to not work at all for extended periods of time without actually losing your job. We're having a pretty stunning day here down in Gimbalwald. Uh, I went for a run um, over to the Lobhorn Hut down the valley a ways. Uh, really good day. We've had killer weather the last few days. Freedom is a wonderful thing, something our team seems to really treasure and kind of hold dear. But as you've heard a million times before, freedom isn't free. The freedom I'm referring to requires a sense of like self-discipline that isn't really necessary when you're managed by another person. It requires a sense of self-awareness to know what we can and can't handle in a healthy way. And for me, that's a line that is often blurred. I can't always tell when I need to get up and go take a walk or sit and meditate. Sometimes if I've been working a long week, it's really hard for me to determine if I'm doing more harm or good to my team. In order to have freedom, to operate without all the rules and boundaries found in typical workplaces, we have to be self-aware enough to know when we're doing well and when we're not. And when we're not doing well, we need to be able to say to others, yo, I need some time off. Digging these mountains. Not at work. It's pretty hard to beat this. In our environment, those that do not take great care of themselves can be incredibly toxic to everyone around them and not even know it. Discipline has to be there. And if we don't impose it upon you, you're going to have to impose it upon yourself. Well, I am deep into the heart of Middle Earth right now. Um, this is super cool gorge down there. Big waterfalls coming up. Eye of Sauron is right up there. For the last five or six years, I've gone to a little village way up in the Swiss Alps. You have to take a cable car to get there as there are no real roads or train stations. There are only a few houses and the village mainly consists of farmers and their families. What they do have an abundance of is mountains. Some of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen in my life. There are trails for days and you can run or hike or climb or just sit there and stare at the majestic landscape. I keep going back to this place because I experience a sense of peace 
and groundedness that don't experience anywhere else. I love to travel and I love to experience new places, but at least once a year, I have to go back to this same place because it recenters me like no other place can. I don't think about clients or projects or growth or revenue or worry about all the relationships I need to maintain. I just hike and I run and I climb. And on rainy days, I sit and read and write and think and breathe. And it's the most relaxing and wonderful place I have found on this planet. But it's always hard for me to go. In spite of all the amazing qualities I just described, it's still hard to leave. Why? Because there's always client work. I feel guilty about leaving my team members behind to work. I feel guilty about leaving my wife behind to care for our house and our dog while I'm out goofing around. Yet it is absolutely necessary for my sanity and for my ability to be better at my work and in my relationships. I have to go. Thanks for tuning in to this uh, 2019 retrospective episode of Reframe. We're going to have new shows coming at you uh, relatively soon for 2020. Um, you can go back and listen to all these shows. They're all on Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, as usual, this is produced by Stoked. You can find out more about us at stokedproject.com. My name is Jacob Jones. Until next time. <laughs>